Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? Doing well. Doing well. All right. So I, I was watching the news, which I'm prone to do. It happens. Is there something? And <laughs> well, yeah, there's big news. Big news that happened just uh, on Thursday mm-hmm. earlier this week. We have our first uh, black female justice of the Supreme Court. Wow. Uh, she made it. She squeaked wow. through the confirmation process. And uh, I don't know if you watch any of the ridiculous speeches that were being made about oh, her being, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, in the yeah. pocket of the far left and all this other stuff, which is crazy. Because if you did any if you do any research into her judicial philosophy and, you know, here's the other thing. It's been so long that we've had anybody on the U S Supreme court that has any actual trial experience, much less, that is, you know, that is legit a really valid point. And, and, you know, <clears throat> most of them are, um, uh, you know, just strictly like academics or appellate people. And you know, like, like nobody's on the front line and they're making rules. Like the Supreme court's job is to make rules for how things are to go on the front lines on the front lines. And a lot of them have never been there. Most of them have never been there. And the front lines, they're like the generals, the way in the back goes, Hey, that looks bloody up there. Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> Man, have another cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me, there was this, um, there was this, uh, uh, this English comedian. I can't remember his name, but if I describe him, you're going to know who I am. He always in the show, he always had a cigarette and a drink and he's yeah. there. Do you know what I'm I talking know you, Yeah, I do, and I can't, but I can't think of the name. I know exactly and, who you're talking about. He was, he was, he, he, one of his jokes was he's, he's like, and the general came out and he said, he said, okay, men, we are outnumbered four to one, and it's going to be bloody and it's going to be hell. And he's going to, but you're going to, we're going to like go, go get them, you know? And he's like giving to the big speech, right? Sort of a patent thing. And then, um, and then he's like, and then he's like imitating one of the soldiers and, he, and, and he's like leaning up against the tree, having a smoke. And he's like, what are you doing? There's a battle going on. He's like, I'm having a smoke. <laughs> he's like, why are you having a smoke? He's like, I killed my four. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Anyway, <laughs> you do with Judge Jackson. I just wanted to tell that. Yeah. <laughs> That went that went far afield very fast, but anyway. Yes. <laughs> but, but back to Judge Jackson. The, the, now, just, soon to be justice. Uh, so I guess she won't actually get sworn in until the end of the term, right? Because uh, Justice it's Breyer, right, that she's right. Uh, replacing is going to continue until you know what midsummer or something like that. I can't remember, but so I guess I guess technically she could get sworn in. And just not be seated until his formal departure. I don't know. Yeah, I think that is what's going to happen. But um, yeah, very significant because uh, yeah, just a little more about like, her judicial philosophy. She's you know incredibly intelligent and and very uh, well reasoned in a lot of her um, decisions that she's made, and she actually does have substantial experience. Uh, you know, along the way. And that's another thing, you know, there are some people that end up on the highest courts, including the U S Supreme court that have, you know, like you said, a lot of academic type stuff, or they're involved in, 
you know, some gigantic firm that has a lot of political power, political play, that kind of thing. And they end up being on a, you know, a U.S. district court for a couple of years, then maybe a court of appeals for a couple of years. And then, boom, they shoot right up to the top. That's happened, you know, mm-hmm. numerous times. I mean, uh, you know, we have a Wisconsin Supreme Court justice that it did that exactly it did that in all in the course of about a year and a half, you know. Right of total judicial experience before rocketing right to the top. Um, but so, anyway, uh, it's interesting how this, you know, it's supposed to not be political, right? This whole process is supposed to be one of the least political things that we do um, in government, but it becomes such a tremendously, um, you know, bogged down political nightmare really is what it turns into. Was, it has been for a long time. It's not anything well, new. There was not any, confirmation hearings until Louis Brandeis in the early 20th century. That was the very first one. And he didn't even go. <laughs> the only reason they had a he didn't hearing. Show up. He didn't have to. No, you know, they, he wasn't even expected to go. I think um, uh, the first time a, a justice actually went to the hearing was in one of uh, Roosevelt's appointments in like 1939. And I, I forgot it was like Hugo black or whoever it was, but anyway, it was like, um, uh, it was not a thing all through the most of the history of the country. And then suddenly it was kind of a thing. And, you know, um, it's, it's strange, you know, some of the justices, um, didn't practice law at all. Uh, Warren, um, Earl Warren, he was governor of California. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in law school and I learned that. I was like, wait, what? He was <laughs> judge and he became chief justice? Wait, <laughs> what the heck? You know, it is really bizarre. And I, and, I, and I guess on one level, you kind of see um, the value in having those political skills to kind of bring people to your side. And that's what he did with uh, the Brown decision and so, you know, many others. And um, on the other hand, um, you know, you really want some people that are not, you know, that are really have some serious knowledge about the system up and down the scale, you know? Right. So, and as she does. And, and you know, and the fact that she was a public defender, she's literally the first public defender, like the first person who ever did defense work on the Supreme Court in the history of the country. Uh, you mean as a as a career? As, I mean, as a job, as, actual job. I mean. There've been there've been lawyers in the Supreme Court that have defended somebody along the line somewhere. Oh, you know, I mean, as a job, great. Yeah, yeah no, I don't mean like one-offs. You know, yeah. where they <laughs> no, um, no, nothing like that. And and so and and that, and that's a hard job, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, sometimes people criticize public defenders for the quality of their work and stuff, but man, that's a hard job, and they're underfunded, so they're purposely overworked, um, and. You know, uh, and and so she and she was even a federal def- uh, uh, public defender, which, quite frankly, is pretty well resourced. <clears throat> yeah, well, compared it's still to- incredibly complicated. Yeah, I mean, it's better resourced, but you know, still, you, you and I both know that the way that the federal government prosecutes cases, the li- the resources are limitless. They oh, just, uh, the, 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 yeah, going up against federal prosecutors, um, man, they. They first of all, they don't they don't indict cases. <clears throat> excuse me, 
until they're good and ready and they have like a mountain of evidence that you can't touch. And then they have, you know, the, the mandatory minimums. So it's like, okay, what do we do here? You know, right. Uh, it's tough. I enjoy federal practice because, you know, when you win, it takes a lot of work and you have to, you have to be good, you know, and you're right in the sense that a lot of most of the cases, probably all of the cases have been so thoroughly vetted and, and the ones we don't see, the ones that they don't uh, charge or seek an indictment from a grand jury are ones where, you know, if they determine there's any risk of them not being able to prevail. They've always got the option of kicking it into state jurisdiction for something, you know, and they do that. They do that. And then we don't see the case or we see it in state court, but um the, they're in order to pursue a federal charge, there's been a lot of work and effort to determine that it's actually you know going to stick and that everything's been done correctly, especially if the feds are, are relying upon any state initiated resources. You know, I see a lot of that where if uh, they're going to double check and triple check to make sure that the warrants were all done correctly, if they were done by state authorities and things like that. But it's a very rewarding process too because you you really have to know the ins and outs nuances and so forth of the federal system you remember back when um they started the green bay division of the eastern district of wisconsin and there was there was a push to have you know they needed people to become qualified to represent people in as defendants and i remember (laughs) we went through this training process now fortunately i had and I know you did too back at that time already had a substantial amount of experience in the federal system. So, you know, we already knew what we were doing, but they brought in, you know, kind of area lawyers to, to try and orient them to how the federal system works. And I remember there was a, it's like a little mini seminar where I think about 60 people showed up to take this, you know, I think it was a two day long class and I did it just for the fun of it. But um, out of all those people, I think there were like two that ended up uh, being willing to take the federal cases because they just got scared. They're like, oh, no, I can't handle this. <laughs> They're super complicated. And the, and the federal law is, you know, if you're used to a state practice, even if you do criminal law in the state, it's a completely, it's like a completely different language. Mm-hmm. You know, the fundamental constitutional concepts are the same, but all the federal cases are different and there's all different nuances and, um, uh, and, and, and you are vastly outgunned, you yeah. know? Well, we got to take a break, John. So we'll be right back after these messages. And we're back with more legal defense. Wow. Well, you know, no matter how you cut this um, Jackson uh, confirmation, uh, it's historic. And I think it's something to be celebrated, um, not just because of um, the uh, – diversity that she brings to the court and the, frankly, the brilliance, um, you know, but, you know, honestly, all of the justices, no matter whether you like them or not, they're all like super smart, you know? Yeah. So that's not really a question. You um, know, another thing that, that uh, is, is a kind of an unexpected phenomenon that most people don't realize if they, if they don't uh, have their boots on the ground, like we do, but some of the toughest judges out there are people that did defense work. And you know, there's a there's a kind of a slang term, you know, someone gets black robe syndrome when they, when they get on the when they get on the bench. And I can tell you, I mean, some of the most ill-tempered, 
and uh, you know, frankly, harshest judges are ones that that worked for the public defender's office or did defense work in the past. It's I don't know if it's like a you know psychological backlash or if they're worried about being accused of being too soft on stuff. But I mean, pretty much every judge that I I've known that used to do defense work ends up on kind of the harsh end of the, at least on the sentencing uh, spectrum. Um, some of the best judges are people are former DAs. I mean, it's, it's crazy, but yeah, I, you see a lot of, um, I, I think it's partly because a DA, especially someone who has substantial experience as a district attorney is going to hold the prosecutor's feet to their fire. And that's really one of the most important things that a judge can do is to, Make sure in applying the law that the prosecutor has to do everything right. That's really what our burden of proof and burden of production and and everything is all centered around is that before there's going to be a conviction, the state's got to do the prosecution, the government has to do everything the right way. So, you know, if you give them a break here and there, then that's not really fair to the whole system. Yeah, and one of the reasons, um, and this is um, – a serious and legitimate debate. And, and I honestly don't even know where you land on this, but um, uh, one of the reasons of that black robe syndrome is because we elect judges mm-hmm. in Wisconsin. And in fact, most places in the country um, uh, judges are elected um, at the state level. And of course at the federal level, they're all appointed by the president, um, which makes the election of a new president, a very consequential thing, as we found out. Right. President mm-hmm. Trump, who, you know, exercised his power very, um, you know, massively. to a <laughs> um, and, and, and that was his right. You know, he got elected and that was his right. And, um, and, uh, and so now it's the foot, the shoes on the other foot, but to get back to the appointment versus election, um, I think that, you know, people who did public defender work, they get elected or they get appointed and they don't want to look like they're some namby-pamby public defender. They want to look like they're tough because otherwise they fear they're going to get chewed up at election time. Right. You know, as being soft on crime or whatever that silly, you know, moniker is. And, and you know, seriously. And, you know, in fact, in New York State, I I just like was aghast when I found this out. Judges are not only elected, they're partisan races. Mm. They, they are elected as Republicans or Democrats or whatever. That's wild. And, that's really wild. And I don't know if other states do that, but that's ridiculous. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, okay, maybe we're, we have nonpartisan elections for judges and maybe it's an illusion it is an illusion but the point is it's, it's but at least we try the very thing you're trying to avoid uh right is completely obviated if you have a d or an r next to the person's name you know yeah because justice is not supposed to be political we're not supposed to be right not supposed right. to be in fact in fact there was a um a district two court of appeals race and you know and uh, you know a lot of folks that may be listening or their eyes are going to glaze over they don't know what that is you know and and i get that but in wisconsin we have you know uh, circuit courts at the just the basic trial level then we have courts of appeals and we have four districts in wisconsin that have you know i think i don't know seven eight nine judges each something like that Mm -hmm. and then we have the supreme court which has seven justices and so and 
there was an election in District 2, which is like the counties surrounding Milwaukee. And um, I remember sometimes I dial into AM radio just to kind of listen to the, you know, some of the conservative talk radio and stuff. And there was like a three minute ad about this candidate. You know, this is the conservative candidate for, you know, court of appeals on and on and on about how conservative this judge was. And um, I'm just like, OK, um, that's not supposed to matter. <laughs> right. It's really not. That's it not doesn't matter. And, and yeah, you're right. Uh, both candidates did some questionable things as it related to some of the ads that were out. Um. Cornblum had an ad that, although it was accurate, you know, as opposed to some of the Lazar ads that were not accurate, that actually said things that weren't correct. Um, Cornblum had an ad that was accurate, but, you know, took a swat at Lazar for, um, you know, as something having to do with the sex offense case, which is, you know, that's low hanging fruit. If you're going to, if anybody ever sat on any kind of child sex abuse case and the person didn't, you know, get strung up by their toes, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you, you're going to call it weak, right? You know, it's just so easy. You or I ran for office with all the cases, oh boy. thousands oh of cases handled over the decades. <laughs> um, yeah, that so wouldn't go too well. It was just a good day. It's like, all right. How many murderers have you? you know? Right. Exactly. Well, it should be. It is a badge of honor that I wear, and I know you do, uh, to uh, to do the noble work that we do. And I I agree. It would it would probably be very underappreciated in that context. Yeah. Um, Just uh, Lewis Butler is a classic example of you know somebody got chewed up um, by uh, Gableman when he ran, and um, because he was a public defender. You know, mm-hmm. and a brilliant one. I mean, you know, well, yeah, his Butler is a good friend of ours, and um, he's, uh, you know, he's literally one of the smartest lawyers I've ever met. You know, I remember um, he, uh, I think he told me this personally that you can tell whether somebody supports him or not by the way that they pronounce his first name, because yeah. it's Lewis. It's Lewis, and yes. that's how he refers to himself as Lewis. But if you call him Louis. Like Louis Armstrong or Lucky right. Louis or Loose Louis or something like that, then you probably are not a fan of his, you know. Yeah. He's absolutely right. I mean, everybody that was critical of him called him Louis Louis Butler. Well, I have to confess, I am a I am a, a friend of his and a fan, uh, but I called him Louis for years. And <laughs> to me, I didn't realize, and then somebody corrected me, and I'm like, oh, oh no disrespect, <laughs> sir. <laughs> but. Uh, oh. But, you know, Judge Justice Jackson, I guess we can call her that now. Sure. Um, uh, she's she's going to have an effect on the court, but she's not immediately. Like, in terms of actual vote counting or decisions, because there's a supermajority that's going to just control for who knows how long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, But you know what? Uh, when Justice Thomas took the bench um, in the 90s, early 90s, he was like often right field all by himself. And now he's like some, some <laughs> chief justice. Right. The functional yeah. chief justice, you know. And so these things, these things do, you know, um, wax and wane. 
So I don't know. So who knows what her future holds? And judging from what I saw at the hearings, um, boy, she's not only got the law down because she put on a master class there for a while, um, but uh, but boy, she's just got like a soft touch, like some skill, mm-hmm. like some personal skill, like you know, um, that's what I saw. Uh, yeah, I agree. Especially batting away all those silly, you know. Right. That that was amusing because the, a lot of the senators that were asking questions, it was apparent that they didn't know what they were even talking about. You know, <laughs> yeah, I don't think they cared either. <laughs> she she took a she she made short work out of those those issues pretty quickly. But um, you were right though that you know if anybody that pays attention to this, she's like right down the middle in terms yeah, of absolutely. Sort of, so there's nothing radical about her at all. Not, oh, not, even, not even close. Not even yeah. remotely close. So, um, and, uh, and, you know, and I'm glad some people got, you know, the federal, I know we're coming up on our break, but you know, the federal sentencing guidelines got taken to task, as they should. Mm-hmm. You know, like those are a relic. They need to go away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more after the break, because that's all a very right. good point. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed those commercials. But we were going to talk about the sentencing guidelines and, you know, we talk about them frequently on this show, but, you know, not everybody listens to every single show. I know they should, but, you know, just in case you don't, you don't recall or are familiar with what sentencing guidelines are. First of all, there really aren't any in Wisconsin. You know, they were going to do that at one point. Well, we and had we had them briefly in the briefly. early I don't remember them. I remember them coming out, and then I remembered some judges like kind of following them, but then they just went away. I don't know what happened. They just but, they just disappeared. Yeah, yeah. It just fell out of practice or something. But it was when was it the early 1980s? I believe that um, the sentencing commission was formed right. in order to try and provide greater, I guess, consistency. So, okay, this is the classic, you know, lawmakers in Congress and the Senate, you know, getting their hands on uh, the the judicial, pro- the, the you know, the uh, discretion that judges, you know, inherently are supposed to have and then limiting it. Right. That's actually what they were doing under the guise of trying to make it more fair, which it, it didn't. So it's just up until Booker came out, United States versus Booker, um, you know, we went through how many decades of just this really draconian application of mathematical sentencing to the tail tail was wagging the dog. I mean, yeah. the case outcome was based on tying the judge's hands and giving all of the power to the prosecutor. I mean, that's and, just how and it was. That was by design. You know, the ostensible purpose was consistency fairness, you know, and, uh, and gradation of like a minimal participant, the ringleader, you know, that <laughs> sort of thing, you know, and these are literally, by the way, those are literally words from the yeah. guidelines. So ringleader. And, yeah, so, so, um, uh, I just had a prosecutor call my client a ringleader. I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> kid barely can tie his shoes. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, this, this the small uh, ring that he leads to this one, <laughs> but the guidelines were mandatory. That's what Kirk is referring <laughs> to. They were not um, uh, something that the judges could um, depart from. 
and unless there was a motion from the government. So the right. government decides what they're going to charge, and they know that it's going to kick in these mandatory minimums, number one, and then or a very high guideline range, and which are two different things, but they're also very powerful. And the government alone decides how those are going to play out. And, and the judges are just like, there were a lot of federal judges that were just throwing their hands up. They're like, well, what are we doing here? <laughs> Why am I even here? <laughs> no. Well, what's, yeah. what's hilarious about the guidelines manual and, you know, every, anybody who practices in federal court has the current copy of the guidelines manual. I still have a paper copy. I know you're going to call me a dinosaur for that, but, um, but you know, it's it's about, you know, a good four inches thick with the, between the two volumes. And, you know, the, when you order every year's new version, um, it comes with a little uh, laminated card that you can pull out. And that's the chart, you know, that you can you, you plug in the um, criminal history category and the offense level, all of which were determined by the Sentencing Commission. Right. They decide they decided how serious different crimes are by assigning it a numerical score, you know, and then they decide all this stuff. So it's a lot of really detailed kind of crazy stuff that mechanizes this whole process. So, you know, I mentioned United States versus Booker. That was the case that, that held in very, and it's interesting that uh, there wasn't some court, some sort of statutory workaround on this whole issue. Cause I think there probably would, could have been a way that they changed the law, but it's basically holds that it's impossible to have binding um, uh, guidelines that, completely remove discretion from the judge because separation of power thing. The separation of powers, exactly. And that's where we get section 3553 A and all these other things that that outline things. And if I recall correctly, those those uh considerations were always in the guidelines, except that they were not allowed to be applied. <laughs> so Booker kind of changed it so that the judge has to now and 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 will consider a number of different things in deciding whether to depart from the the guideline range. So yeah. and the guideline ranges are expressed in months. So if it's a serious case, it would be like, you know, 360 months to 420 months, you know, something like that. <laughs> and then uh, it, so, and that's again, as you, you look it up on the chart by plotting your X and Y axis. So yeah, yeah uh, it's still, they're still important because they still do. Well, like you said, there's mandatory minimums that kick in, uh, that that put it squarely back in the realm of you know pre Booker era um, sentencing and and that's you know we talk about mandatory minimums a lot and it, it's one of the most unfair things about the practice of law. It's and also that makes um, that has made the trial right itself kind of disappear. Mm-hmm. And I'll, no. I'll tell you, we have some of the worst ones here in Wisconsin. You know, there is there is a mandatory minimum for and probably one of the harshest ones out there that I'm I think it has to be the harshest one out there. You can murder somebody in cold blood, pre premeditated, you know, for no good reason other than you're just a bad person and you want to see someone die for the fun of it. And there's no mandatory minimum there. If you touch a. 12 year old in the wrong place. And if there's enough factors that they can allege contribute to it in the right way, you're looking at a mandatory minimum of 25 years. 
in prison. And there's a lot of people that can and do say that that might actually be worse than murder. I don't think so. But you hear that a lot from prosecutors like, well, murder is bad, but this is like right next to it. You know, right. This is like a sub. This is like murder, which is, you know, honestly, I think that that is I you you never want to say that it's not a bad thing. Of course, it's a bad thing. Duh. Right. But but the problem is by putting people through this whole process and making it so, you know, you're you're re-victimizing somebody that probably could have benefited very well from not having to participate in a prosecution of a family member or a loved one or something. And also there's a lot of false cases and a lot of oh there are a lot manipulation of children in custody battles and just Mm -hmm. like breakups, domestic violence. And so they um, they engineer these things because they know how potent they are, and that and that um, they don't need you don't you, you don't need DNA you don't need other witnesses you don't need physical evidence mm-hmm. all you need is somebody saying it happened and mm-hmm. boom right and, even, and it, a lot of times it it could be something that the person didn't even mean what they said or they said it uh, and it was taken the wrong way but then all of a sudden that person is. That young person is, you know, basically treated as though they just can't change their story. And if they try to, if they try and say, wait, wait, I didn't mean that. They're like, no, 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 you did mean what you said, you know, originally. That's that's exactly what you meant. Don't you can't change. Why are you changing your mind? Is it because you're being abused? You know, (laughs) but but in those cases, the prosecutor, when they charge that alleging a 25 year mandatory minimum, you can bet that there is a large number of cases that end up getting settled because of that huge nuclear weapon, right. you know, right. it and, is yeah. and you know, the, I hear, I've heard and seen it a lot where someone says, well, I'm not guilty, but I don't want to run the risk of having to do at least 25 years. So, you know, that's, <laughs> here's, here's another mandatory minimum in the state level that um, uh, kind of surprises me. And that is, that um, uh, like if you're a repeater um, have been a felon in possession, mm-hmm. four years mandatory minimum now. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the reason I say I, I find that a little strange is because of the strong gun culture that we have in Wisconsin. Right. Um, and uh, the, the likelihood that the Supreme court is going to, pretty much abolish the need for concealed carry permits in the in, at all. And that it'll just be like, you can carry whatever you want, whenever you want. But if you're a felon, then you get a mandatory minimum. You know, I don't hear a lot of second amendment guys um, shrieking about that. Yeah. And, 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 and why is um, being a felon, somehow related to voting or the ability to have a gun or, or you know, I mean, this, this um, uh, really goes back to, you know, honestly, yeah. like reconstruction and the Jim Crow era and yeah. sort of thing. you're right because the, those laws, although now they're regarded as, you know, wrong and, and a method of disenfranchisement that's based on an improper motive. It, it set the ground, you know, know, the groundwork for the idea that you can utilize that taking away of a right that someone would otherwise have due to 
you know, some particular status in their um, in in our society. So we're going to take a break, but we'll be right back. We're back. More legal defense. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> we sure um, have. You're like we've uh, been to Tucson and back, you know. <laughs> you know, let's let's pivot to international law, like Ooh. and kind of a specialty of yours, the law of war, mm-hmm. which, <clears throat> frankly, we use the term law, but it's like laws of like who's enforcing That's kind the, of law. the opposite of law, actually. You know, <laughs> um, it's like lack of law. But, you know, there's there's this retreat by the Russians in Ukraine um, to concentrate on the eastern part of the country and all of that. And so as they retreated, we've discovered um, uh, this what appears to be kind of a massacre and some people genocide. I don't know if that term is is truly applicable, but the. The, the videos that we've seen, you know, people, their hands tied behind their back, people tortured, um, allegations of rape, um, that sort of thing um, are, you know, con- and, you know, bombing hospitals, maternity wards. So these are considered war crimes as we've defined them through various Geneva conventions um, and, you know, that sort of thing. And um, and so so the question becomes, you know, what what to do about that? You know, it was pretty clear after World War Two who the bad guys were, what they did, the Holocaust, they were Nazis. Okay. So all former Nazis. So, you know, we didn't line them up against the wall and shoot them. We gave them trial. Some of them. Yeah. We had some of them after a trial. Right. Right. True. You know, after a, and some of them were acquitted. Some were acquitted. That's true. With the, you know, the Nuremberg trials, they were acquittals. That and, and, and it was really, you know, I mean, they, the, the people that went on trial were like hands, you know, there was just a select number that went on trial. It wasn't like everybody in Germany, you know? No, but, no. And, and so, but what do we do in this case? Cause it's not like death camps. It's not that, you know, that clear definition. It's just atrocities going on, which appear to be, you know, done by these soldiers. And of course, you know, the Kremlin says, well, no, this is all a big fake thing. And, you know, sort of like, you know, the Parkland shooting was fake. You know, I mean, yes, <laughs> like, right. I mean, now, what they what they failed to account for is that there are, you know, uh, unbiased international journalists on the scene that have that are witnessing this. It's not it's not yeah. the Ukrainian government only that's reporting this stuff. Yeah. So but you're right in the sense that. You know what do you what do you do about it? Because the, the essence of the law of war, the law of armed conflict, as you've correctly pointed out, is it's not like actually a law. It's just <laughs> you know the it's it's a it, it's a pattern of practices. I guess is the best way to do it. And they're supposed to be self enforcing. I mean, in some ways, it's um it, it's kind of genius if you think if it works properly and works correctly. And that is if an incentive to not commit war crimes and atrocities is that your your enemy will in turn not do do them you know and if they do if you do they will you know it's it's sort of like a mutually assured war crime you know right. <laughs> process <clears throat> but it's also just immoral and you know it's unfortunately i think that if you look back over the history of pretty much all armed conflict these same things happen every time. I mean, it's it happened 
in Vietnam. It happened in obviously in Iraq. Not not that the Americans were doing terrible things, but you know, th- there there were there was disregard for of you know morality that's occurred in past pretty much every war that's ever happened. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> I talk about this a lot on the show. I know so. Forgive me if I'm going back into this, my military mode here, but you oh, know, there, uh, you know, the 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 gentlemanly way of uh, engaging in war used to be, you know, that's one reason why there was reluctance to utilize or form um, aero squadrons in World War One because it was this new technology, and it was just considered immoral, like it's just unfair. You can fly over and bomb them. That's crazy. That's just you know we'll just win. We don't want to. We don't want to win that easy. You know. No, uh, I'm exaggerating. But <laughs> what we just want to use chemical weapons. Yeah, yeah. Instead, use chemical weapons. No, but um, <clears throat> it kind of it kind of demonstrates that the very idea and that um, you know, a reluctance to do something that would trigger your enemy from resorting to some kind of technology that they may have developed. Now, of course we know that's the heart and soul of the cold war was that it, it was, it would never start because it would be suicide for anybody to actually launch a, a nuclear attack. You know, what's scary about that is that that's not true here in this situation that, you know, I don't know what exactly would happen if Russia used tactical nuclear weapons, but it probably wouldn't result in their complete annihilation. You know what I mean? No. Um, back back in the Cold War, it would have. Well, we didn't have tactical weapons that like right. we do now. It was you know, it was like the ICBMs. Yeah. Um, with you know, it's funny. Uh, those are there's never been one that's actually been used, right? I mean, uh, a live actual ICBM that's ever been launched and detonated. It's never happened. Right. Um, right. <laughs> so a, a lot of the yield is, well, I mean, I think they're better at, at predicting it right now, but you know, when they were doing the first hydrogen bomb testings uh, in B- Bikini Atoll, do you ever see um, the Atomic Cafe? It's a, it's a great film. It's from the eighties, oh. actually. It's just the, <clears throat> there's no narration. It's just a, um, Craft, craftfully put together series of propaganda type films and army training films and stuff like that. You know, the duck and cover stuff <laughs> and just uh, the juxtaposition of, you know, how ludicrous some of this stuff is with, you know, documentation of what was, what the actual explosions were like when they were doing this testing. It's, it ends up being like comical, even though there's no commentary whatsoever. So they were, um, expecting they had a predicted yield of um, the first hydrogen bomb explosion that they wanted to measure by, and this is terrible, but it's how they did things. They had various types of live animals on uh, one of the islands and a lot of other measuring stations and buildings and structures and stuff like that. With the idea being that they were going to go back and, you know, see what the effect was. Well, it turns out that the crater that was formed at the bottom of the ocean and swallowed up the entire island uh, <laughs> was far, far greater explosion than they anticipated it would be. Oh, my, yeah. Which, like, freaked everybody out a lot. <laughs> well, um, that's, that's good. I mean, this is sort of like, you know, <clears throat> air, 
Uh, but, you know, to go back to the Ukrainian, you know, uh, atrocities, I guess is lack of a better mm-hmm. term. That's appropriate, yeah. Um, you know, uh, this is still an ongoing conflict. So um, is the International Criminal Court, which is supposed to deal with war crimes, does it have any teeth? We're not even a signatory. Um, right. And I don't understand why. Our I don't know policy to cooperate, though, with the International Criminal Court. Why have we signed on to that? I don't know. I think it has to do with, um, you know, there is due process, but I don't think it rises to the level of what we would consider true due process. Okay. You know? the I only think that, that's part of the historical concern. The only word that are being prosecuted are um, – uh, Couple of guys from Yugoslavia and a bunch of African warlords and Myanmar. They have oh a right of, a lot of trials that relate to that as well. But it's so, it's usually genocide or or some similar allegation. But you know, one of the problematic things I, I want to talk about the disturbing topic of you know raping people in front of their children and killing their mothers in in front of them. You know that that's a horrible thing, and obviously, but you know unless they could show that that was uh, tacitly approved or encouraged, which I doubt, right? There's not going to be a pamphlet that says, Hey, any chance you get start raping and killing women, you know, it's It's not like like the Nazis that had these massive plans and they had to build these death chambers and all that. And and here's the interesting thing. If they were U S troops, they would be prosecuted by the U S military, Right. That that's if that happened, and a U.S. soldier got caught doing that to an enemy civilian, we would court-martial that person very, very quickly and very, you know, uh, harshly. Yeah. Uh, so it, it just makes you wonder. I mean, that's that. And by the way, you have to if you're the, because you can't show any leniency when it comes to you know soldier misconduct. You, you just can't because it sends a a terrible message you know to the enemy that yeah you're gonna you're gonna basically approve of all that so i wonder i mean but again this has become such a huge uh war of of propaganda going on and and uh i just can't it's really hard to believe that such a gigantic country as russia that spans you know nine time zones uh Mm. you know is somehow capable of being duped by their own you know, in today, modern age with modern uh, means of communication, you know, I know that they're doing a lot to try and limit that. But, hey, you know, it's a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, yeah. well, you know, um, uh, they pass harsh laws and they shut things down. So I know we got to go. But um, all right. Great talking to you again, as it's always fun chilling yeah. with you, my friend. So, yes, sir. <laughs> All right. We'll tune in next week as you can every week, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.